Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Tom Cruise on the call, and Tom, I really appreciate your time here today. And before I start things off, I want to send everybody to this because I think they're they're in for a bit of a treat if they head over to free. You, you're offering a free Section 8 webinar, That's and correct. you can find that at section8webinar.com. Great domain correct. name. Make sure you use the number eight in that. Um because Section 8 is something that we typically, we haven't talked about much, um, but I, I feel that it's it's something that uh, a lot of people should be aware of. And right. in some cases, some people might even avoid because of of the perceived or perceptions oh, yeah. around it. Um, so let's, let's start things off. I know that you have a pretty significant portfolio of your own. Correct. Uh, let's start there. Like, how did you get into real estate investing? Yeah, um, it was a complete accident. I had bought a condo right after uh, college, and I lived in it for about a year. Decided that I wanted a single-family property. Um, sick of living in a condo. I bought a dog. All the reasons why I'd get it. So, mm-hmm. tried to sell my condo. This is right after 08. Um, I had put three percent down on an FHA loan, so I had no equity in it, so I couldn't sell it. Uh, so I just decided to rent it out and see what happened. And at the time, I was renting it out for $500 over my mortgage. That was kind of the you know light bulb moment for me was, wow, I'm doing nothing. Set it up on a Venmo payment every month. I had a great tenants. I screened them very aggressively. I mean, to the point where I had lunch with them because <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know who I was putting in this property. And that's really where it, it got me interested in it because here I was you know, spending $500 a month on a marketing client and spending weeks on reporting and work. Whereas here I had my Section 8 tenant or my, not she wasn't Section 8 at the time, regular tenant. At five hundred bucks, and the um, scalability and the predictability of it was very nice. So then, after that, you started to acquire additional property. Correct. Yeah. So what I did was I was doing marketing at the time, so I was doing website design, like I said, and, and local SEO, and I used that money along with the cash flow that I was retaining from my condo to buy my second condo. Um, I already had you know proven concept with my first condo, so I was like, let me try a second one. So I continued buying these seventy to ninety thousand uh, dollar units. I quickly found out after getting several of those over you know three to five month span that dealing with the HOAs and the COAs and the assessments and having my my tenants fight with neighbors you know that are in the same building, it wasn't worth it. And then I decided to to go into the single family world. Um, I went a little bit further upstream. I started at like one hundred sixty to one hundred eighty thousand dollars starter homes, um, brick ranch homes locally. I was only able to swing two or three of those because a 20% down payment on $180,000 house here, you're almost putting out 40K up front. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to make that much money. It took me like four or five months to be able to save that from my condo rentals. From um, I was also doing wholesaling at the time. I started doing real estate wholesaling. Um, it just took too long to be able to accumulate that much of a down payment. So that's when I went you know, to the other side of the spectrum and I started buying $60,000 homes in non-HOA neighborhoods. And the first one that I bought the day after closing, I, I paid 55 grand for it. There was a tenant in there at $1,350, which should be my first red flag. But the day after closing, um, the seller calls me. I was like, hey, we need to switch you over to Section 8. And I, was, I, I was completely confused. No idea what was going on. He's like, yeah, how did you think the rent was $1,350 on a $55,000 house if it wasn't Section 8? 
And I, I didn't know at the time, I had no idea. So I freaked out, um, jumped in, learned everything I could about it. Fortunately, the tenant on my first experience was very good. Um, they were also disabled. So Section 8 was paying 100% of their rent. So, I mean, it was about as a good experience on the first one as, as I could have. Then I learned about inspections. I learned about managing them, um, the, the inspection process, learned about managing the tenants, learned about screening because um, the screening process that we do on Section 8 is very different. So that's essentially kind of, I accidentally got into real estate and I accidentally got into Section 8. It's been a lot of accidents as far as getting away from uh, my active source of income into passive real estate. So the Section 8 thing actually happened by accident as well then? Exactly. Yeah, I did. I had no idea when I bought that unit. The, the owner was probably around 85 years old. He was retiring, was sick of dealing all of his properties. He was just dumping them all. And um, owner was retiring. So I was able to acquire it from him and I was able to get a solid loan from a local credit union. And they went as low as I think it was $40,000 loan at the time. So yeah, that's how I got into it. Oh, well, that's, that's really interesting. So, you know, you, you, you brought up uh, some of the things that you've learned along the way. Um, let's, let's go down that short list that you, you had there. Sure. Um, so I'm going to guess that with section eight, you're experiencing some different things. You mentioned inspections. Yeah, inspections are the biggest difference between Section 8 and a market rate tenant. With Section 8, they have annual inspections and upfront inspections. So when you first get a Section 8 tenant involved with the property, they want to come out and make sure a three S's, it's sanitary, structurally sound, and, and safe. Uh, make sure that all the outlets work, all the flooring is in good shape, there's no massive holes in the roof, the foundation's not crumbling. Um, and once you pass that, it's normally about an hour-long inspection then they give you a green green light and then they start paying you the rent and the tenant can move in. So that process, the first few times, I mean, there's a learning curve. I mean, they will ding you on things that on a regular inspection, you know, that you would never even consider. For example, I had a, tile, a regular probably 150 square foot kitchen all with ceramic tile. And on the corner of one of the tiles, there was like a hairline fracture on it that the tile wasn't even loose. It wasn't a hazard, but they considered a tripping hazard. So you have to pull that one tile, put a brand new tile that does not have a you know fracture on it, um, in in order to pass the inspection. I've had you know parts of the house on the exterior have some like you know green moths or growth or algae on you know the shady side of a house, and they'll make you power wash it. They're like, oh, that that could potentially cause you know holes or intrusions of water. So on a private rate tenant, market tenant, they would have never cared about a quarter of the bottom of the back of the house on the vinyl siding having some growth on it, but section eight will ask you to power wash it. So there are additional hoops you have to jump through. That's really the only difference. Everything else, a tenant is a tenant. If you screen them correctly, the probability of them causing problems is very low. Sure. So, you know, you, you, you mentioned, uh, this, the screening, like what, what additional steps or have you, has your screening method changed when dealing with section eight tenants? It does. So we kind of have like a four, prong approach. We obviously check credit. Um, we check credit, even if Section 8 is paying 100% of their thing, we're still making sure. I mean, that gives you a lot of background. If they have four foreclosures, three bankruptcies, a bunch of repossessions, um, there's going to just be ongoing issues with them. There's no way around it. There's going to be drama involved. There's going to be creditors involved. There's gonna, there's always something involved if their credit report is that ugly. So that's the first red flag. Then we look at background. You know, If they have multiple violent felonies or you know long incarceration periods and they just got out and uh, depending on what they did, you know, that's obviously a, a disqualification. And then eviction history, any evictions whatsoever, it's an automatic disqualification. We're, we're not even considering it. 
And then if they pass through all that, then we'll just straight up, we'll do a home visit. We'll have my property managers that will go to their property. Um, we'll give them a two or three day notice and make sure that the property is in good shape. Um, the best indicator of future results is, you know, what they're doing currently or in the past. So we'll go by, check it out, exterior, interior. Um, I mean, it takes five minutes. There's only so much you can hide in that time frame, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. there's holes in the walls or if the rugs are soaked in pet urine, it, you're, you can guarantee it's going to happen at your house. So what kind of actions, let's say the, the tenant is going off the rails like that and they're damaging your property, like how quickly or what type of resolution do you typically enforce? Um, it rarely gets to that point because we've already done all the screening. But if it does happen, we do biannual inspections. So we have two inspections ourselves and then Section 8 has theirs. So we're in the house at least once a quarter on average in a year. So if any of that happens, it normally doesn't get to be that bad because we're able to fix it beforehand. And it's just one, that's the big advantage of Section 8 is you have leverage one email to their section eight counselor with pictures showing how they're treating the property and how they're breaking the lease in multiple ways, then for the most part, they're going to fix it because they don't want to lose their voucher. If they lose that housing assistance, it's a federal program. They get blackballed for life. They will get their social security number ends up on a list and they just won't get assistance for their family forever. So it's, it's a really serious thing. And for the most part, they do take it seriously. Hmm. You know, if they get evicted, it's, it's bad for them. Sorry. Yeah, no, that, that's re- that's really interesting that you're you're essentially using that program as y- your re- your enforcement arm. Exactly, and that's what exactly what we do. Because I mean, we could send them one of our contractors over there. You know, they can be as assertive as they want, but the second you call, you know, their eighty year old Edna property manager at Section Eight, their counselor, and she emails them and says, "Hey, look, this is your." last warning, any more breaches of the lease, you know, we're going to have to pull the voucher. Or if we file an eviction action and we're successful in it and we send that eviction to, to section eight, they'll pull them. You know, they, they don't want that dealing with other landlords. Hmm. So I'm going to guess that depending, does section eight, typically the rules associated with it vary from one state to the next? It's a federal program, so it's obviously administered on a county level. Uh, we do see some nuanced differences. Obviously, it's different inspectors, it's different counselors. Some counties, I've heard some counties, you know, they don't care as much. So if you complain about a tenant, they might say, hey, it's between you and the tenant, figure it out. Um, the counties that I'm operating in, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Tennessee, and Ohio, I, we've had good luck with it. You know, me and my property managers, I think it's a big part is how you start the relationship. You know, I'm being very attentive to the to the to the inspector, making sure that everything he requests gets fixed. Because imagine the amount of people that he works with that just like balk at everything he says, that gives them an attitude that doesn't fix what he says. We're on a such good relationship with most of our inspectors that if we fail an inspection, which does happen, even with a checklist, they'll just say, "Hey, I'll mark you as passed. Send me some pictures later today after you fix it, and then we'll be good." I mean, and that's really the level of kind of trust that. I force, you know, I've made my property managers do this. I have a checklist. If I'm out of state, I want before and after pictures. I, I, I require, you know, videos. Uh, so my property managers here can see the inspection as it goes on. So that's just the level of control you have to have, um, at least at the beginning when, you, when you're building that relationship with them. So are, are, is majority of your portfolio then Section 8? Is yes, that what you have- focus on? Correct. Yeah. So about 350 out of my 400 existing units are Section 8. Oh, wow. And the 50 or 60 that are not are regular tenants. We have a few Airbnbs thrown in there. A lot of the tenants that are not Section 8 are the ones that we've inherited from previous landlords that are good. We don't get rid of good tenants. 
So, you know, with all that being said, I'm sure there's like a, when it comes to the acquisition of those rental properties, are they all, they're all single family homes? For the most part, uh, we do buy duplexes and triplexes. I try to avoid it if it's not submetered on a utility level, because I'm not, my name is not on any utility bill in my entire portfolio. Um, it's just the easiest way to, for them to meet it. Your cash flow is if your power's in your name, they're running that, that AC with the windows and doors and everything open. They don't care. So um, if it can be submetered, I'm buying small multifamily. If it can't, then I'm just buying single family and non HOA neighborhoods. Are there any, re- have you found that sweet spot regarding the acquisition on the, on the price and the location and that for your residents? Yeah. So moderate crime, sub $100,000, three bedroom, one or two baths, under a thousand square feet. That is a gold mine for section eight. Um, especially if you have vinyl siding and a decent roof and a newer HVAC, you have years of maintenance free, assuming you're tenant screening the tenants correctly, tenant, you know, headache free issues there. And then it's just ongoing. Is there, is there a, uh, a, a, maximum that you can charge in rent on a on a monthly basis then? So Section 8 publishes what's called the fair market rent uh, through their HUD website. So you can see what they will pay. They do do waivers, meaning if you find a tenant that can't find housing anywhere else, they will pay above what that fair market rent is. We've seen it happen before as high as like 15% over that. Um, but it gives you a very good sense of what the market's like in that area. So if you go into a market and you're seeing a ton of houses, like in Akron, Ohio, for example, you could buy a move-in ready three-bedroom, two-bathroom, 60 grand in Akron. I mean, you're picking up a, what, a 50 or $48,000 mortgage if you finance you know, 20% down. That's going to be a $350 payment, principal interest, the tax and insurance there are nothing. And Section 8 pays $1,200 a month on it. The cash flow is insane. Even with property management, vacancy, our turnover is so low with Section 8 that we don't even calculate vacancy into our cash flow numbers. It just doesn't, it really happens. And if it, we do get a vacancy, the wait for Section 8 to be on their program is two to three years. You can call any housing authority in the country that you want right now, doesn't matter what the county is, and pretend that you want to get on Section 8. And they're going to tell you, good, good luck, jump in the line. It's going to be three years before we can get to you. So there's a never ending demand of tenants on the program. Uh, they don't turn over for that reason because where are they going to go? There's no other landlords scrambling to accept Section 8, right? The demand is so high and the supply of properties is so low that, I mean, we we have units rented inside of two weeks every single time. Hmm. That's really interesting. So you, you essentially have a baked in constant flow of tenants. I mean, how- Yeah, do we you, don't do market. You, we don't, market don't have at all. to market all. No, the flow is find the property, close on the property, get the address, send it to Section 8, they will either advertise it through an email list to the existing tenants looking for housing, or they'll put a list in the housing authority. And that's it. They contact you. We have a funnel application funnel. They go in, get pre-screened, pay their $49 application fee. Um, and then from that point on, it just, you know, automated. And then how we soon, have obviously, yeah. How, how soon do you get somebody in then? Let's say you close on a property, you get added like that whole process from to, to getting added, added to the, from closing to tenant move-ins, about three weeks, if you do it right. Uh, from the closing, then you have, let's say, 10 days for finding tenants, screening tenants, collecting security deposits, scheduling inspection. The only bottleneck there is inspections and how long, how, if they're backed up, especially with COVID. We've seen it take a, you know 10 to two weeks for that. But once you pass the inspection, then they can move in same day. And then 
you're getting paid on the next billing cycle. So if let's, for example, today is the 19th, if we close on the property today, found a tenant by November 1st, um, you're getting your payment for that entire period on December 1st. So just to remind everybody, if you want to learn more about this, head over to free section, oh, I'm sorry, section8webinar.com. I, I yeah. keep looking at my first line there. Yeah, which no is, it's a free section eight webinar, it is. but it's just section eight webinar. Use the number eight.com uh, for right. more information from Tom and his team. Yeah. You, know, and you guys can also follow me on uh, social media too. It's T Cruz NC if they want to contact me. Yeah. You have a pretty big following on your socials. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, TikTok is where I started. Um, and that's T as in Tom Cruise, C-R-U-Z-N-C, like North Carolina. And I'm also on Instagram. Those are the two big platforms that I'm on. And I'm answering DMs myself. So if you guys have any questions about Section 8, feel free to reach out. So, um, you know, th- it, this almost sounds a little too good to be true. Like, what are, yeah. what are, your, what are some of the gotchas here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the main thing is you have to be careful where you're buying. A lot of people will fall into the trap of like, oh, it's cheap housing. Like, let me go f- buy the first one that fits kind of the criteria. But you have to watch out for crime rates. Just because people are on Section 8, they still care where they live. They don't want to live in you know, a drug trafficking corridor. They don't want to live where there's drive-bys. So the gotcha is property selection and market selection. If you're able to do that correctly, then there's really nothing else. Um the process to get a tenant in there is the same as like a market rate tenant, you know, except you might want to do additional screening, like I've described, um, and inspections. If, if you have a bunch of units, like right now with us with 350 inspections, that's 350 inspections per year. Granted, they're obviously spread out pretty equally throughout the year, but if you don't have systems or people in place or, you know, software in place to handle that, it can be just one more, uh, bottleneck in your, in your, in your pipeline. But for the most part, there's no real gotchas. Um, don't be a slumlord. If you don't fix the problems that the inspector tells you, they will stop paying you until you fix them. And if you don't fix them again, they'll put it into an abatement process. And then you have to go through like an entire thing with the inspector, housing authority gets involved. But if you take care of the property, if the tenant is happy, they will stay there forever. I still have tenants that were there when I started real estate eight years ago or from my first ten- you know property that I bought seven, seven years ago for section eight. So all of that plays into it. You have low turnover, you have higher than average market rents, you have a ton of properties that fit the bill. And these properties that are 70 grand, they're not like quarter million dollar properties where people are paying 30, 40, 50K over sticker or over asking for, right? It's um, properties that are in areas that don't have the huge appreciation that you're seeing in more you know, middle of the road housing. Um, I mean, guys, if you don't believe me, just go to realtor.com, type in Ohio and look at properties under $100,000 that are not under contract. And it will blow your mind what you can buy for that little money. Mm-hmm. And Section 8 does not care what you pay for the property. That's the, that's the magical part. You can literally pay $40,000 for the property if it is will pass their inspection and it conforms to their guidelines. And it's a three-bedroom or two-bedroom or four-bedroom, then you're going to get the rate that they're advertising. So I, I suppose during the whole pandemic and the COVID thing, I mean, it, it probably had, did it impact you at all? I mean, you're we had, getting we had, most of the money from the states or federal governments. So. Yeah. We had the best year ever in 2020 because it was the perfect storm. We continued to get all of our Section 8 properties paid for. So we never had any lapse in debt service to any of our lenders or banks or, 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 or institutions that way. And then everybody was looking for housing. Everybody was uh, looking for properties. We have already everything set up with 
um, contactless showings. You know, we have the doorbells or the locks that you can go in and schedule for. We already had everything in place. So we were still showing units. We were still renting units. We were almost at 100% occupancy, which has never happened ever. I think we got up to 98% occupancy on 400 units uh, during during the pandemic. So uh, we were buying units. We were actively looking for units, acquiring as much as we could, because there's a lot of landlords that didn't have that set up. Imagine if you had four properties and you still have a full-time W-2 income and your four tenants lose their job, and now you're stuck you know, with $5,000 a month in debt service, you can't swing it. And there was no support for them. So for months that happened, we were buying properties, not at fire sales, not at 08 rates, but we were getting good deals. And that's because we hedged the bets on section eight. So it's pandemic proof, recession proof, future proof, market proof. It's all the proofs. Well, you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, keyless entry and, and a few other things. What other systems did you put in place to manage? I mean, the level that you're talking about you, you, was 400 properties. Yeah. Um, you're, you're managing four, 400, most of them are single family homes. Correct. Um, what type of systems or tips in place are do you have for people to try to manage to scale to this level? Yeah. I mean, so I had my own software built out called Cruise Control, um, coincidentally. And we use that to manage. Uh, it's just my own software that I built in-house and it's designed for Section 8. So it splits invoices. It you know integrates with these different platforms that allow you to do these um, content showings. Um, it, you can get deposits to, you know, in order to give a key access, all of that's part of it. Um, I'm not selling the software. It's just something that we use internally, but there's a lot of other good ones out there. I like Inigo, I-N-N-A-G-O. I'm not a partner of them, but they can sponsor if they want. Um, and they, that's what we used from before. And it worked really well. I've used all the app folios and buildiums. And I think, I think it's overrated. I think it's not very good software, honestly. Um, and it's designed more for multifamily, you know, multiple property managers, not investors that are looking to scale their portfolio. Sure. Well, you know, this is this is really interesting, especially uh, this aspect and and the focus. Yeah, it, it's one of those examples again of what you focus on grows, and and you really exactly. found a found a niche here, and uh, yeah. have really built out the 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 importance of processes. I mean, this is... And that's really the only way to do it, especially with the financing piece, which we didn't really have time to talk about, but being able to you know, scale the financing aspect, finding investors, finding banks, portfolio lenders, finding hard money, that's all goes into just another funnel that I set up to be able to continue acquiring. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you can get that down and no one's talking about it, Section 8 is not the sexy Airbnb, it's not the sexy you know, flips or the birds that everyone loves talking about, but... There's nothing better from a predictable, predictable, guaranteed, and scalable way of growing a, a portfolio. There's nothing better. Well, I mean, it, it goes back to what I mentioned before. There's kind of a misconception, you know. Oh, yeah. you, 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 when you talk about Section Eight, you're, you're, you you oh, yeah. automatically go to the bad trailer place. park boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's and that's the case. The way you have to think about it, though, which is the way that this investor originally told me, he's like. Section 8 is simply a payment method. If you get two tenants and you don't know if they're on Section 8 or not, they're the exact same you know, type of person that they're going to be going into the unit. One person might be paying with a cashier's check or a credit card, and the other person just happens to be using the federal government's wallet in order to pay you. And when you look at it that way, if you screen both tenants, you'll instantly find out if they're going to be a good fit or not for your property. So 
Uh, the way that they pay us, we don't care. The fact that it's guaranteed and it's on the first of the month and we don't have any billing issues, we don't have you know accounts receivable issues, you know, our property managers can focus on managing the properties and not chasing rents every month. It works wonderfully. Sure. Well, you know, I really appreciate you giving us this time here today and yeah, chatting no about this. Um, again, I want to direct everybody to section8webinar.com. And I got yeah. it right that time. Section8webinar.com yeah. for the free webinar on Section 8. Um, before I let you go, is there a question you wished I would have asked you here today? Uh, probably just back to financing. I think that would have been it. Like, how did I finance that many deals? I think a lot of um, you know listeners are like, oh, great. You bought your first house. I can do that. Okay. How did you buy your 10th house, your 20th house? So that could always be something for another uh, podcast. Well, I think we could, we could, if you have the time, we could spend a little time on that right now. How do you, how did you scale yeah. to this level? Yeah. So a big part of it was you have to be creative. So my first 10 units that I bought were with Fannie Mae traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac financing. Um, it was, you know, 20% down investment loan uh, deals through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, federally backed loans. Uh, they're conventional and every borrower they're limited to 10, 10, 10 finance loans, right? Under Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. So mm -hmm. after I hit that cap, I had to start looking for other alternatives. So the next step up was portfolio loans. I you know, started looking for local banks that would do in-house loans, credit unions, for example, that would say, hey, look, you know, we'll give you um, in five units. That's our maximum exposure. We're okay with half a million dollars or five units, whichever one comes first. Um, so I'd say, okay, that's great. That's really not enough. Because I was buying at this point, I was buying seventy thousand dollars houses. I was putting twenty percent down. It's only fourteen grand. It took me maybe two months between wholesale deals and reinvestment of my cash flow to get to that point. So I knew that I could buy like six to eight houses per year. But if a bank was only letting me do three or four at a time, I needed to be able to expand that. So I went to every bank in my community, and not the Wells Fargo's, not the BOAs, not all the big institutional lenders. I was going to you know. First South National Bank, you know, those kind of, mm -hmm. there's one teller and one, you know, vice president in there and they can make the decision. And that's really helpful because A, they're a lot more liberal with their, with their financing. They know the area. They're only lend lending within maybe a hundred miles of where you're at and getting an approval is a same day process. I bring my, you know, W-2 tax returns. I bring the whatever income I was making from my marketing company and that I was paying myself for the W-2. And then I also had cash that I could bring in and create a deposit relationship with them. Banks like that of that size, checking accounts are everything. If you can say, hey, I'll throw $10,000 in or $5,000 in. And oh, by the way, all the rents that I collect every month, I'll put into your checking accounts. They love that. So that's all part of um, growing it. And then obviously at some point, I wanted to grow past the amount of down payments that I had. So I think that happened around 20 or 30 units. I wanted to be sick of buying one or two at a time. So I had to look at other people's money, you know, networking. And I already had a pretty extensive like LinkedIn network. I had, you know, local people that I'm a big car guy. So I go to a lot of car events. So I just started talking to people about real estate. Um, I started, I, I had to post a lot of this on Instagram and Facebook about what I was doing when I was buying these properties, kind of my section eight journey up until this point. And as everyone that's doing real estate knows, when you talk to other people about real estate, they already inherently know real estate is a good investment. Um, they know that most people are, you know, millionaires from real estate, or more millionaires are created from real estate than almost any other industry. So, 
when you go to them with a track record, hey, look, I have 10 properties. I've section eight them. I'm making $13,000 a month gross. 6,000 of that is net income to me. It's guaranteed. And here's my last trailing 12 months profit loss balance sheet, everything you need to see. Asking them for half a million dollars to go buy another 20 units is not a big stretch. So that's what I did. I essentially started building partnerships with other people in my area so I can continue buying it. So you can actually Google like Tom Cruise, Wilmington, North Carolina portfolio. And I had the largest single family portfolio acquisition in my county, in history, in my county. It was 100 units. And we bought it for $6 million. Uh, most of them were empty or had you know just terrible tenants in them. We cleaned house. We you know fixed up a bunch of the units. I reoccupied them. Two years later, we sold it for $10 million. Um, and that all came from forcing appreciation through Section 8. Uh, most of the units were on Section 8. The buyer was ecstatic. I mean, he almost didn't believe it. He was asking for bank statement certifications. He wanted you know, CPA audited documents. He wanted everything because he was like, there's no way you have almost 100 tenants on Section 8 paying you on the first of the month for months on end. You know, it's just, it's when you look at most investors' portfolio, you have all these late fee charges, you have eviction charges, you have legal charge, you have all this other stuff. We didn't have that. We had a stable portfolio, mostly guaranteed rents. And from that point on, um, I did a cash out refinance on those hundred units. Um, sorry, no, no, the hundred, those hundred units I sold. There was another portfolio with 80 units. I did a similar deal with my partner. Instead of selling it though, I did a cash out refinance on it. And I took that cash. I bought him out because at the time we were buying properties at five, five and a half percent interest rate. And a couple of years ago, it dropped down to what, three, three and a half percent. So once I did that cash out refi, I was able to, um, keep my payment about the same, keep a pull a bunch of cash out. I bought him out and then I retained those 80 units myself and added to my portfolio. So that's essentially the progression is over years of time, I now have relationships with six different banks because they would each say, hey, look, I'll give you three here. I'll give you five here. I'll give you four here. And then eventually I consolidated all those loans into one, one bank with one commercial bank blanket loan. And now I'm able to go back to any of those and, you know, hey, look, I, I need a million dollars. I'm trying to buy these 50 units, you know, can you, can you work with me? And it's obviously mm -hmm. a lot easier because they have more collateral to lean against. So that was the financing aspect of, of, uh, getting to 400 units in less than eight years. Yeah. Wow. It, it, 400 a units, lot. a lot of them. That's a lot. You know, <laughs> I, I, the reason that, that it, it perplexes me is frankly, the only time I've seen anybody climbed that many units so quickly multifamily. are multifamily. I, yeah. To, to do single family homes at this scale is is very impressive. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I don't like multifamily. There wasn't much to buy locally. So single family made more sense. I like the liquidity of it. I can easily go right now, take 10 single family houses at 150K a pop, sell them overnight. I mean, you, you know how fast it is. Um, appreciation when you're on the dirt and the the those individual properties, I just feel appreciate at a much higher rate than a big apartment complex. It's, I don't like dealing with on-site amenities. I don't like dealing with a competition from other apartment complexes in town. I don't like having to deal with tenant issues. My property managers hate dealing with the tenant issues living in that proximity. Section eight, homogenized like that. If you have a 300 unit apartment complex and they're all in section eight, it becomes not the best living situation. So there's a lot of reasons why I didn't go multifamily and I stuck single family. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like it's really working well for you. Yeah. Again, uh, just a reminder, uh, section8webinar.com. I really appreciate your time here today, yeah, Tom. Man. This was a great conversation.
and hope uh, you'll come back again sometime. Of course. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. If you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing, if so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.